Our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bradshaw. Uh, Dr. Bradshaw is a senior research scientist at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. Is that cool or what? He studies uh, human and machine intelligence and human against robot teamwork. That's what I hope we'll hear about. Interesting. Uh, and he will be talking about science and genesis, a personal view. If there's enough enthusiasm, we'll save the robots for a future conference, I hope. I'd love to get into some of the stuff that I do on a daily basis. Uh, but today, I really want to talk about Genesis. In fact, some of the talks that we heard today could be taken sort of as minimizing the importance of, of Scripture and Genesis. And I don't think any of the presenters meant to do that, but I kind of felt it'd be good to give a talk because I love Genesis and the Book of Moses about... Um, sort of the values that are there and, and how deeply as a scientist and as a disciple I feel about those great books. Uh, my title today is, is a personal view because it's, these are just really my views uh, from my own experience. The book of Genesis has always been uh, a favorite of mine since I was a small child. I've read it over and over and uh, it's I love its spiritual truths, I love its literary beauty and its frank and vivid descriptions of the lives of the patriarchs. They're entwined as in no other book, uh, intimately with her, their family lives, and that's one of the things I think you can appreciate about Genesis, is all the family stories there. Well, let's see. Advance. There we go. However, given their status as targets of humor and caricature, the well-worn stories of Adam and Eve and Noah are sometimes difficult to take seriously, even for some Latter-day Saints. However, a thoughtful examination of the scriptural record of these characters will reveal not simply tales of piety or inspiring adventures, but rather carefully crafted narratives from a highly sophisticated culture that preserve deep memories of revealed understanding. We do an injustice both to these marvelous records and to ourselves when we fail to pursue an appreciation of scripture beyond the initial level of cartoon cutouts inculcated upon the minds of young children. Hugh Nibley, who always said it so well, characterized the problem this way, quote, the stories of the Garden of Eden and the flood have always furnished unbelievers with their best ammunition against believers because they are easiest to visualize, popularize, and satirize of any biblical accounts. Everyone has seen a garden and been caught in a pouring rain. It requires no effort of imagination for a six-year-old to convert concise and straightforward Sunday school recitals into vivid images that will stay with him for the rest of his life. These stories retain their form of nursery tales they assume in the imaginations of small children to be defended by grown-ups who refuse to distinguish between childlike faith and thinking as a child when it is time to, quote, put away childish things, as Paul said. It is equally easy and deceptive to fall into adolescent disillusionment with, with one's emancipated teachers and to smile tolerantly at the simple gullibility of bygone days while passing stern moral judgment on the savage old God who damns Adam for eating the fruit he put in his way and overreacting with impetuous violence wipes out Noah's neighbors simply for making fun of his boat building on a fine summer's day. End of quote. At left is Russell Crowe in a film adaptation scheduled for a theater near you in March of next year. 
Bible, uh, Paramount officials have, have called it, quote, a close adaptation of the biblical story, end of quote. Bible readers will, of course, agree with director Darren Aronofsky's description of Noah as a, quote, dark, complicated character who experiences real survivor's guilt after surviving the flood, end of quote. Accordingly, he portrays the prophet with perfect scriptural fidelity as a, quote, Mad Max-style warrior surviving in a pseudo-post-apocalyptic world. Students of the Bible will also surely recognize the um, portrait or ride of one of the watchers, depicted in exact correspondence to the graphic novel that inspired the movie as, quote, 11 foot tall fallen angels with six arms and no wings. The profound accounts of primeval history deserve better treatment. To understand them for what they are, we need to bring our best to the task. The powerful tools of modern science and scholarship, the additional light of modern revelation, and of no less importance, the consecrated dedication of inquiring minds and honest hearts diligently seeking divine inspiration, which we just heard about so well from Amy. The simple fantasies of a, quote, fanciful and flowery and heated imagination will not suffice. Today, then, I'd like to share with you some personal lessons learned from uh, in my study of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and the LDS book of Moses. In the interest of time, I'll summarize these perspectives under three headings illustrated by examples from Scripture. Elsewhere, with the able collaboration of David Larson, I've written about Genesis 1 through 11 in greater detail. Throughout the presentation, I will draw heavily on the writings of my, that insightful pioneer, Hugh Nibley, who served as a baptized Virgil for me in my journeys into the blind world of mortality described in the primeval history of the Bible. The first lesson I've learned is that God's plan is more vast, comprehensive, and wonderful than we might imagine. Even some of the most doubting of scientists have stated their willingness to keep their mind open to the possibility of a God, so long as it is a God, quote, worthy of the grandeur of the universe. For example, the well-known skeptic Richard Dawkins stated, quote, if there is a God, it's going to be a whole lot bigger and a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed, end of quote. Similarly, Elder Neil A. Maxwell provingly quoted the unbelieving scientist Carl Sagan, noting that he, quote, perceptively observed that, quote, in some respects, science has far surpassed religion in delivering awe. Well, just think about the slides we saw this morning um, uh, of all the moons of Jupiter. How is it that any hard, hardly any major religion has looked at science and concluded, this is better than we thought? The universe is much bigger than our prophets said, grander, more subtle, more elegant. God must be even greater than we dreamed. Instead, they say, no, 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 my God is a little God, and I want him to stay that way. Joseph Smith's God was not a little God. His God was a God that required our minds to stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss and the broad expanse of eternity. That is more of a stretch than any of us can tolerate at this time. Although the ninth article of faith says explicitly that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, the general rule is that such revelation will come only, quote, when we're ready to understand it. That's from President Kimball. The prophet mourned that, the thing, that, quote, the things that are of greatest importance are passed over by the weak-minded men without even a thought, a phenomenon that made him want to hug truth to his bosom all the more. I just love that from the prophet Joseph Smith. I believe... All that God has ever revealed, said he, and I never hear of a man being damned for believing too much, but they are damned for unbelief. 
He complained that he tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but they would frequently fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. He compared the difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation to splitting the hardest of logs with the flimsiest of tools. The prophet ran into that trouble when he received section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Many were shaken and some apostatized because they could not broaden their narrow sectarian notions of heaven and hell to, accompany, to encompass the glorious doctrine of the three degrees of glory. More recently, we have seen this same phenomenon in the unwillingness of some saints to give up the outmoded idea that the Book of Mormon peoples were confined to the boundaries of North America. With these precedents in mind, we come to the topic of this symposium. When considered in light of the findings of science, Genesis and the Book of Moses invite us not only to stretch our minds to consider how God's work extends beyond our own earth to include the salvation of worlds without number, as others have already discussed today, but also to stretch our minds to consider the vastness, comprehensiveness, and wonder of God's plan for all creatures who will live and have lived on this earth. Ooh. This beautiful copper engraving by Noel Pisano was made from the meticulous observation of one of the many prehistoric paintings in the caves of Peshmerel in the heart of the Massif Central of southern France. Although the cave walls and ceilings contain many images of greater sophistication, this simple tracing of a single hand appeals to me. Its original is solidly dated to 25,000 years ago. Thank you, Bart, for that explanation of, of, uh, of dating. Yet in standing to examine it in close quarters, the gap of time between oneself and the skilled artist is suddenly erased. We are brought to admire the beauty and subtlety of his technique. To create this work, the artist would have had to crawl into the cavern by candlelight. After contemplating the design and choosing the ideal place for its execution, he placed his hand on the wall to serve as a stencil. To create the colored outline, he projected pigment onto the rock by blowing, perhaps with the help of a sprayer held tight between his lips. This well-honed technique is allowed a negative of the hand, surrounded by symbols whose meaning is now lost to us, to be preserved tens of thousands of years later as an ancient snapshot, the sole remaining memory of the life of this individual. Hugh Nibley, with his great love of all God's creation, had great sympathy for these ancient individuals and had thought long and hard about how their stories fit in with those of Adam and Eve. For a thoughtful perspective on this issue, we can do no better than to quote from him directly. Quote, the philo philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, in his essay on the Christian system, said that the two fatal flaws of Christianity were, one, denying spirit and mind to any other creatures but themselves, and two, allowing life on no other world but our own. This should be no concern to us. Continuing, he said, Do not begrudge existence to creatures that looked like men long, long ago, nor deny them a place in God's affection, or even a right to exaltation. For our scriptures allow them such. Nor am I overly concerned as to just when they might have lived, for their world is not our world. They've all gone away long before our people ever appeared. God assigned them their proper times and functions as he has given me mine. A full-time job that admonishes me to remember his words to the overly eager Moses, for mine own purposes have I made these things. Here is wisdom, and it remaineth in me. It is Adam, as my own parent, who concerns me, continuing with Nibley. When he walks onto the stage, then and only then the play begins. He opens a book and starts calling out names. They are the sons of Adam, who also qualifies the sons of God, Adam himself being a son of God. 
By the way, this is very clear when you study the pearly great price. This is not a, um, a title of biology. It's a title of priesthood progression. It's, it's something that's bequeathed on one through worthiness. This is the book of remembrance from which many have been blotted out. Adam becomes Adam. A hominid becomes a man when he starts keeping a record. What kind of a record? A record of his ancestors, the family line that sets him off from all other creatures. That gap between the record keeper and all other creatures is so imaginably enormous and yet so neat and abrupt, we can only be dealing with another sort of being, a quantum leap from one world to another. Results of genetic studies seem to indicate that both the most recent common male and female ancestors of mankind each lived long before Adam and Eve entered mortality, or for that matter, at a more distant period than Noah, whose sons traditionally been understood to be the sole male survivors of the flood. Nibley, Nibley raises a series of questions with an eye to finding scriptural support for surviving non-Noachian lineages that might help explain such scientific findings. Quote, what about those people who lived before Cain and Abel? What about those who disappeared from sight? He's got little scriptural footnotes to each of these. What about those who were not even warned of the flood? Who were Enoch's people living in a distant land of righteousness who never appear on the scene? What about the Cainites? What about the nations among whom Noah will have surviving progeny? Continuing, Nibley said, Speaking of Noah, the Lord said, Blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come. Methuselah boasted about this line as something special. Why special if it included all the human race? These blessings have no meaning if all the people of the earth and all the nations are the seed of Noah and Enoch. What other line could the Messiah come through? Well, there were humans who were not invited by Enoch's preaching. End of quote. Nimbly, no doubt, was wondering whether some of these shadowy peoples described in Scripture might be neither descendants of Noah nor of Adam, but rather contemporaries whose descendants presumably mixed with the Adamic lineage. Of relevance is the reminder by Ryan Parr that promised blessings from patriarchs such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are of necessity driven by covenant and lineal descent, not by genetics, since, quote, nuclear, specific nuclear DNA finding its way from any one of these progenitors to any descendant of today is extremely unlikely from a biological perspective, end of quote. Happily, the promises made to the faithful covenant posterity are not about inheriting fragments of Abrahamic DNA, but rather about receiving a fullness of Abrahamic blessings assured through faithfulness. Otherwise, the possibility of adoption into the Abrahamic lineage would be meaningless. I'm humbled as I read the first chapters of Genesis and the book of Moses and contemplate the vastness, comprehensiveness, and wonder of God's plan for all his creatures. It is too grand for the human mind to grasp, but not too great, great for God. Elder Neil A. Maxwell frequently referred to what we might call God's greatest understatement. He spoke of the fact that in two adjoining verses, the Lord said tersely, I am able to do my own work. Then he commented, brothers and sisters, that is about as nice a way as the Lord can say it, that he can handle it. Lesson two, scripture, ah, is a product of a particular point of view. Nibley illustrates this idea, quote, the Latter-day Saints, like other Bible readers, are constantly converting statements of limited application to universal or at least sweeping generalities. To illustrate, I was told that as a child that the Rocky Mountains, the Appalachians, and the Andes all came into existence overnight during the great upheavals of nature that took place at the time of the crucifixion, an absurdity that plays into the hands of critics of the Book of Mormon. 
But what we find in the third Nephi account, when we read it carefully, is a few sober factual eyewitness reports describing an earthquake of 8 plus on the Richter scale in a very limited area. Things that appear unlikely, impossible, or paradoxical from one point of view often make very good sense from another. Continuing, Nibley says, the nautical almanac gives the exact time of sunrise and sunset for every time of the year, yet astronauts know that the sun neither rises nor sets, except from a particular point of view, the time of the event being strictly dependent on the exact location. From that point of view, and from that point of view only, it is strictly correct and scientific to say that the sun does rise and set. Just so, the apparently strange and extravagant phenomena described in the scriptures are often correct descriptions of what would have appeared to a person in a particular situation. So with Noah in the ark, continuing with Nibley, from where he was, the whole earth was covered with water as far as he could see. But what were the conditions in other parts of the world? If Noah knew that, he would not have sent forth messenger birds to explore, end of quote. Continuing, I say, but doesn't Genesis 7.19 say that the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered? Explaining his under understanding of that verse, Walter Bradley observes, quote, the Hebrew word Eretz used in Genesis 7.19 is usually translated earth or world, but it does not generally refer to the entire planet. Depending on the context, it is often translated country or land to make this clear. For example, in Genesis 12.1, Abraham was told to leave his Eretz. He was obviously not told to leave the planet, but rather to leave his country. Another comparison to attain a proper interpretation of Genesis 7.19 includes Deut Deuteronomy 2.25, which talks about all the nations, quote, under the heavens being fearful of the Israelites. Obviously, all nations under the heavens was not intended to mean all nations on planet Earth. Elder John A. Widsoe, writing in 1943, summed up the important idea of taking point of view into account when interpreting scripture. Wow, time's flying. We should remember that, says Elder Widsoe, inspired writers deal with historical incidents. They relate to that which they have seen or that which might have been told them, unless indeed the past is open to them by revelation. For example, the details in the story of the flood, says Elder Widsoe, are undoubtedly drawn from the experiences of the writer. The writer of Genesis made a faithful report of the facts known to him concerning the flood. In other localities, the depth of the water might have been more or less. Lesson three, there's a deep relationship between Genesis 1 to 11 and the liturgy and layout of temples. The Latter-day Saints have four basic creation stories, in contrast to versions of the creation story that emphasize the planning process of the heavenly council or the work involved in setting up the physical processes in motion, the companion accounts in Genesis and the Book of Moses provide a structure and a vocabulary that seem deliberately designed to highlight temple themes. Lewis Ginsburg's reconstruction of the ancient Jewish sources is consistent with this overall idea, as well as the proposal that Genesis 1 may have been used as a part of Israelite temple liturgy. Quote, God told the angels, on the first day of creation, I shall make the heavens and stretch them out. So will Israel raise up the tabernacle as a dwelling place of my glory. On the second day, I will put a division between the terrestrial waters and the heavenly waters. So will my servant Moses hang up a veil in the tabernacle to, to divide the holy place and the most holy. On the third day, I shall make the earth to put forth grass and herbs, so will he, in obedience to my commands, prepare shewbread before me. On the fourth day, I will make my luminaries, so he will stretch out a golden candlestick before me. Oh, we didn't get fourth day, did we? 
Um, so he will stretch out the golden candlestick or menorah before me. That sort of makes more sense when you think about this odd phenomenon of them being created on the fourth day, doesn't it? On the fifth day, I shall create the birds. So he shall fashion the cherubim with outstretched wings. On the sixth day, I will create man. So will Israelite Israel set aside a man from the sons of Aaron to serve as high priest for my service. I'm going to have to go through all those again now. Remember, there's five. Okay. Carrying this idea forward to a later epic, Exodus 40, 33 describes how Moses completed the tabernacle. The Hebrew text exactly parallels the account of how God finished creation. Genesis Rabbah comments, it is as if on that day, i.e. the day the tabernacle was raised in the wilderness, I actually created the world. So that, that story has something particular to teach us about the temple. A number of scholars have found parallels in the layout of Darden of Eden and that of Israelite sanctuaries. For example, Brother Donald W. Perry describes the correspondence between the Israelite temple ritual and Adam and Eve's journey through the Garden of Eden as follows, quote, Anciently, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Adam's eastward expulsion from the garden was reversed when the high priest traveled west past the consuming fire sacrifice and the purifying water of the laver through the veil woven with images of cherubim. Thus he returned to the original point of creation where he poured out the atoning blood of the sacrifice, reestablishing the covenant relationship with God. In modern temples, the posterity of Adam and Eve likewise traced the footsteps of the first parents, both away from Eden and also in their subsequent journey of reunion and return. Noah's Ark seems also to have been designed as a temple, specifically prefiguration of the tabernacle, as argued so well in a recent book by Michael Morales. In fact, a few ancient accounts go so far in promoting the motif of a temple as to describe the ark, not as a floating watercraft, but rather as a stationary land-based place of protection where, quote, Noah and many other people from his generation hid in a bright cloud of glory. The ark's three decks suggest both the three divisions of the tabernacle and the threefold layout of the Garden of Eden. Indeed, each of the three decks of Noah's ark was exactly the same height as the tabernacle and three times the, the area of the tabernacle court. Court. Note that Noah's Ark is shaped not as a typical boat, but with a flat bottom like a box or coffer. The ratio of the width to the, of the height to both Noah's Ark and the Ark of the Covenant is three to five. Story of Enoch. Come on. There we are. Is also fraught with temple themes. Enoch is shown here with upraised hands and a traditional attitude of prayer. The right hand of God emerges from the cloud to grasp the right wrist of Enoch and lift him to heaven. His whole city is taken to the bosom of God, the heavenly temple. And then we come to Babel, the Tower of Babel, which after all is a story about the building of a false temple in this case. What has all that's got to do with the topic of today's symposium? In short, I'd suggest that the kind of knowledge that will help us best understand the first chapters of Genesis in the book of Moses is not scientific or historic knowledge, but rather knowledge of ancient and modern temples. Without a firm grasp on the architecture, teachings, and ordinances of the temple, we will miss the gist of primeval history. True, we may race along with the seductively captivating narratives, feeling we are largely grasping what is going on, even if some exotic or minor details are not immediately apparent. However, this mode of reading scripture, an approach that focuses on interpretations of the stories only as presentations of historical characters and events, misses the point. 
Alex Shalom Kohav, explains that although the authors of Scripture, quote, must have actually experienced the meaning of this sacred world, their writings are not exactly in a manner of scientific ethnographic description and report, rather are composed representationally as foundations for collective practices, identity, and ritual. The characters and events of the stories of Adam, Eve, Noah, Enoch, and the Tower of Babel are incorporated in the sacred world of rites and ordinances and must be understood accordingly. On the other hand, Kohav argues, insight into the meaning of these stories is obscured by a uh, recontextualization of the tradition as merely historic or scientific account. Two more slides. Does abiding the primacy of the historical and scientific world and the interpretation of these scriptures mean we are left with only fantasy in its place? Not according to Elder Douglas L. Callister, who said, when you enter the temple, you leave the world of make-believe. The characteristic of awe mentioned by Carl Sagan, so vital to the pursuit of knowledge in both science and religion, has been equated by Elder Maxwell with the scripture term meekness. Illustrating this attitude of meekness is with an anecdote about his father, Elder Eyring wrote, President Henry B. Eyring wrote, some of you heard me tell about being in a meeting in New York as my father presented a paper at the American Chemical Society. A younger chemist popped up from the audience, interrupted and said, Professor Eyring, I've heard you on the other side of this question. Dad laughed and said, look, I've been on every side of it I can find, and I'll have to keep trying the other sides till I finally get it figured out. And then he went right on with his lecture. So much for looking as though you're always right. He was saying what any good little Mormon boy would say. It was not a personality trait of Henry Eyring. He was a practicing believer in Jesus Christ. He knew that the Savior was the only perfect chemist. That was the way Dad saw the world and his place in it. He saw himself as a child. He worked his heart out as hard as he could work. He was willing to believe he knew most, didn't know most things. He was willing to change any idea he's ever had when he found something that seemed closer to the, to the truth. Some take the fact that science reverses its positions from time to time as a disturbing thing. On the contrary, I feel that we should take such events as encouraging news. In this regard, I side with those who locate the rationality of science not in the assertion that its theories are erected upon consistent foundation of undeniable facts and irrefutable facts, but rather in the idea that it is at heart a self-correcting enterprise. The payload of a mission to Mars precisely hits its landing spot, not because we can set its initial course with pinpoint accuracy, but rather because we can continue to adjust its trajectory as the rocket advances to its target. The same thing is true with religion as Paul says, now we see only in part, now we know only in part. That is why we have continuing revelation, and that is why we won't understand some things completely till we meet the Lord face to face. Brother Henry Eyring said that most people who can tolerate no contradictions in their minds, it's those people who have the most trouble. As for himself, he continued, there are all kinds of contradictions in religion I don't understand, but I find the same kind of contradictions in science, and I haven't decided to apostatize from science. In the long run, the truth is his most powerful advocate. That's my experience and my testimony. Thank you very much. What are your thoughts about Brigham Young's statements that Adam and Eve were begotten and born even as we are through procreation? Well, the most recent statement from a sinning prophet that we've had um, um, was from President Kimball in about 1976, something to this effect. He said, we don't know how the creation of Adam and Eve occurred, and when we're ready to understand it, God will tell us. So uh, he at least didn't feel like that was something we currently understood. So I'm ready to hold off on that one. 
Can you comment on the use of water as a symbol in the cosmos in the context of the flood? Wow. You know, um, there's, some, there's some other, some great studies on that, including some things I've done. It's a, it's a very powerful sim, symbol, and to some degree it means um, uh, unorganized matter in some context. So it's a very interesting thing that we don't have too much time on, but I'd be happy to talk to people after. Well, I like your, you and Libley's view of the flood as a regional event, as far as Noah could see. Is there a better way to think of Joseph Smith's teaching that the earth was baptized by immersion during the flood? As far as I know, I've never found that teaching in the teachings of Joseph Smith, but I have found it in some subsequent uh, leaders of the church. I, uh, I don't believe that that meant a complete immersion in the case of the flood, is all I can say. And there's a lot of, there's been others, including Elder Widso, who didn't believe that uh, needed to be the case. How do we deal with the possibility that there was, of course, a death and a rebirth? And again, I've talked about that in some of the things I've written. And so I think it's in that sense that there was a baptism. There was a beautiful image of death and rebirth. How do we deal with the possibility that Genesis has been redacted and altered over time? I've got an extended version of the paper uh, on, the, on temp, uh, templethemes.net and included uh, some discussion of the redaction, the documentary hypothesis, and similar kinds of things. So I'd refer you to that, uh, templethemes.net. Some stories in the Bible are easier to swallow as figurative instead of literal. Which stories do you feel are literal or figurative? So, uh, well, actually, uh, it depends on your, your definition of literal. Again, in the expanded version of the paper, of this paper on the, on the, the um, the templethemes.net, uh, I talk about that because I think it's a very important point. And I kind of rely, those of you who are familiar with the BYU uh, philosopher James Faulkner, he's had some very great discussions on what did it mean to the ancient mind to be literal. And it means to take that scripture to the literal, lit letter, to understand what it meant in their terms. And um, that's, um, I think when you understand it in literal in the sense that Brother Faulkner explains it, I take all scripture very literally. Okay. Oh, he liked, um, or who, he or she liked Maxwell and Sagan. Half, happy birthday, Carl Sagan today. Oh, Eric Ringer, thank you for letting us know. I'd like to believe that he's been taught the gospel somewhere in the realms beyond. <laughs> no one knows. Thank you, Eric. Okay, last one. Wow, these are all long questions. Through discussions such as the one you just g gave, losing, losing so much more light, Losing so much more light and understanding concerning the interpretation of the scriptures, why don't prophets and apostles, those with divine interpretation powers, give correct interpretations more often and more consistently? Wouldn't God to help them not make so many mistakes? Well, I'm going to leave that one alone. I, I, I completely sustain the leaders of the church in their realm of authority, and I think these days, because they don't provide the Sunday entertainment day and night the way they did in the days when they were out in the old Bowery, they're much more careful, I think, about those kinds of things. And, and uh, the statement that was quoted, I think it was in David Bailey's talk about, let's let science take care of those things, um, is probably a wise and, and happy course. And I sustain them in, in all the matters where they do have their stewardship. Thank you very much. Thank you.